Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm very pleased to be joined today in a slightly sneezy shed. I should apologise, I've got a bit of a cold, so if there's sniffles, it's, it's what you can blame my children. I'm very pleased to be joined in the shed today by Ken Wilson and Julia Lewis. Um, anyone who's ever heard any of these uh, before will know I don't really like introducing my speakers. I much prefer them to introduce themselves. So if I can, Julia, can I ask you to introduce yourself first and then, and then as a hand over, hand off to Ken. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, good dark, uh, good dark, good day and Borodar from South Wales. Um, I'm Julia Lewis. I'm a consultant in addiction psychiatry, um, working within the Aniron Bevan University. University Health Board um, and I'm also a visiting professor at the University of South Wales due to my particular research interest which is alcohol related brain damage. Brilliant, thank you. Ken? I'm a, uh, hello, I'm a retired professor of uh, psychiatry at Liverpool University um, and um, I've spent many years working with alcohol related brain damage including uh, quite extensive work with the family courts as an expert witness in this area. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you. Those wonderfully concise introductions. So the reason why I really wanted the two of you to join me in my shed, and I'm really pleased that you're both here, is from a kind of capacity perspective, so mental capacity, capacity perspective, we, we regularly get issues related to thinking about the impact of alcohol-related brain damage on someone's cognitive functioning and how we then think about capacity, both in the court of protection and, and more broadly. And I just thought it'd be really helpful if we could have a kind of almost bullet point guide, and then we can sort of think, unpack it a bit, about the things you think it's most important that anybody working with an individual might need to be thinking about, the things they might need to be alert to, the things they might need to be thinking about, about the impact of ABRD on, on functioning, on cognitive functioning. So I, that's a big question. We've got 20 minutes. I'm not expect, we can't expect a full lecture in 20 minutes, but it's really that sort of, those headline points. And then maybe we can sort of tease out some of those things. I don't know, Julia, do you want to, do you want to take first dibs at this? Oh, sure. Should I start off with what, what is probably slightly obvious, but if you try and assess someone's capacity when they're actually intoxicated, then you're going to have problems and that would go with any of us um yeah. so you've always got to make sure somebody isn't under the acute effects of alcohol now, having said that a number of my patients are never without the acute effects of alcohol because if you're alcohol dependent you're, you're constantly topping up your alcohol levels however they do get tolerant to um, the amount that they're drinking. And I, and I come across a lot of times people going, well, I can't do that assessment in that individual because they're a dependent drinker. Actually, to some degree, you can at least start doing your capacity assessments regardless. Um, so that's just a general point about um, the, the, the assessing in people with, with an alcohol dependence. Um, but then there are slightly the more specific issues uh, in somebody with ARBD. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take one and then I'll hand over to Ken for the other one because I think he's better at explaining it than I am. But if I take the short-term memory issues, um, one of the kind of fairly salient features of ARBD is that people do get initially short-term memory problems and if they keep drinking those memory problems go go further back 
So one of the factors in assessing somebody's capacity is whether somebody can retain the information that they've been given long enough to make the decision. Now, partly that depends on how long you talk to them for, because if you have a five minute conversation with somebody that's got short term memory impairment, they will retain because they've got working memory intact. But if you then go back to them an hour or so later, they may forget even talking to you, let alone mm -hmm. what you said to them. So it's almost that you've got to um, slightly modify the way in which you do capacity assessments in order to take account of the fact that it's short-term memory that's affected, not their working memory. So that's that's kind of one bullet point. Um, Ken will probably be able to talk wonderfully about the frontal lobe impairments that people have in ARBD. Brilliant. I'm, there are two things I really want to come back to, Julia, and I'm going to come to on both of the things you said I want to come back to. But Ken, please tell us, give us the frontal lobe problem. Oh, gosh. Well, the frontal, the frontal lobe is um, it, it, it's a rather uh, complicated area. Um, fundamentally, the front part of the brain is uh, very much um, uh, the powerful reasoning part of the brain in the human being. Um, and um, alcohol, uh, long-term alcohol misuse and thiamine deficiency um, primarily affects the front part of the brain first. So um, fundamentally, a person will present um, often many years before they get memory problems with reasoning problems. And these reasoning problems are subtle and often slow in onset but they include a whole wide range of problems like motivation, um, empathy, um, problem solving, confabulation, that's false memories, um, managing dangerous or technical situations, impulse control, um, as I say, mental flexibility and decision making. So well before you get the more obvious evidence of um, short-term memory, you will often enough, and in fact, up to 50% of people in alcohol treatment services will have frontal lobe problems, even though they're living quite well in the community. And of course, this has real practical implications on things like capacity to make decisions. And... Um, Unfortunately, there are relatively few tests, uh, other than very sophisticated tests, which allow us to actually uh, uh, measure frontal lobe. And consequently, the great importance of taking a clear history um, of these sorts of problems a person has from a confidant or from a carer. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Can I just... Before I come back to Julia on the things I really wanted to pick up on, just, just to pick up on what a few things you said, Ken. So the problems you're identifying, so things like sort of mental flexibility and dealing with technical situations and impulse control and these things, I'm wondering, I mean, as a sort of naive lawyer, I'm just thinking the language of the Mental Capacity Act, you know, so we've got understanding and using and weighing. So I'm rather, I mean, I'm sort of allocating Julia's issue to the retention limb, as it were, and I'm allocating the things you're talking about. And isn't it interesting the extent to which, um, sorry, a tiny bit of background noise there, but isn't it interesting the extent to which the 
the things you're, de- how well do the things you're describing, Ken, map across to if I'm thinking, am I thinking this person's, for instance, understanding this information or using or weighing this information? How do you map those things, those almost quite subtle deficits you're identifying? How do you, you know, how do you begin to start mapping? Well, in my experience, and I think Julia would probably agree with me, um, when people do mental capacity assessments, um, there is often um, a relative lack of probing questions in Mm -hmm. terms of understanding and weighing up. So one of the things a person might ask a person with uh, frontal lobe problems is, they might say, do you understand? Now, if the person has that part of the brain that's damaged that enables them to understand, they won't know that they don't understand. Yeah. So they say, I do understand when they patently don't. So one of the problems we have to do is have sort of sideways questions to probe understanding and weighing up. So, for example, if you're looking at somebody understanding something, you could ask, what is wrong with you that might mean that you need help? Or, for example, what are the particular practical issues which you might need help with? Um, what sort of help do you think you would need? How much help do you think you need? Who's going to give the help? And how is the help going to be organised? And, for example, in weighing up, you might ask things like, what does the individual think the pros and cons of a particular decision are? Why would they not want support if they, you felt that they need it? And what happens if they don't get support? So it's those sort of questions that very few people seem to ask when they're probing, weighing up and understanding. And that gives you an entree into the difficulties a person might have in computing and synthesizing information. Yeah. And I think the other, at least to, from my experience, having done a, a reasonable number of cases involving alcohol one way or another, that point you made about getting kind of triangulating the information seems incredibly important because then you've got a baseline to be able to be going, if this person's telling me something, you've got a baseline to go, this is actually meshing with what everybody else might think is a situation, seems to be one. Well, there has been some literature, and indeed um, it's been reported that... Um, that um, uh, by a couple of authors that it's actually almost negligent not to have baseline information about something you're doing a mental capacity assessment in. So you can marry that with the experience of the capacity access assessment that's there and then. I don't know, Julia has anything to add to that? No, I'm, I think that what, I mean, you mentioned confabulation, but even aside from confabulation, um, people with ARBD, when you are asking them questions, very often um, there's no hesitancy in what they're saying, Mm -hmm. even when it's maybe not a very accurate representation of the truth. They say it with full conviction because that is what they believe. So you very often don't question it. And it's only when you then get that collateral history from somebody else that you realize the true situation. Yeah, no, I think that's, in, I, I mean, it's incredibly important in almost any capacity system, but I, I that, particularly in those ones where you may well have someone who's very verbally fluent, and it's that, particularly that bit which they come back at you, or they come back at the assessor with your complete conviction, speedy, com- in, in most normal human interactions, you'd think, well, this person clearly knows what they're talking about. 
yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. I, I wanted to pick up on the, the 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 what you very much what you started with, Julia. So this idea that if you're you're thinking about someone's capacity with someone who's alcohol dependent, who is basically always on a baseline of having a certain amount of alcohol within the system. And I'm just sort of making me think the principle in the Mental Capacity Act, which says, you know, you're not allowed to find someone who lack capacity without taking your practicable steps to support them. And I'm just really interested in your take on, well, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Are you supposed to say, I'm trying to think about this person's capacity, imagining there was no alcohol in their system. Or are you thinking, I'm thinking about this person's capacity, just knowing there's alcohol in their system. And at the moment, there's nothing really which can be done to make that, as it were, go away. I'd just be interested in your take on you know, how you would yes, think about I, it. I, the ideal legal situation, obviously, is that you um, assess the capacity when whatever the acute thing that's affecting their capacity has worn off. Um, now, obviously, people who are dependent drinkers cannot just let the alcohol wear off because they'll go into alcohol withdrawal and that could be quite dangerous. Um, so you would obviously be hopefully working with them to get them to a point where they could go through medically managed alcohol withdrawal or they could go through a reduction of their alcohol to get to a point where then it is not affecting the decision but i think to be practical on a day-to-day -day basis you have to say well this is what we've got um and therefore we have to work with the ongoing situation and assess capacity as best we can but with that caveat that it's not perfect because in the eyes of the law they've got some kind of acute adulterant in the system that that is potentially affecting their capacity um and i find it with um, colleagues doing assessments of people who possibly are expressing some kind of suicidal ideation um, and they will say we cannot assess them for they are drinkers and you go well yes you can you can assess the acute risk in the acute situation and do something about that okay you can't do kind of a long-term ongoing cognitive evaluation but you can do something in that situation to manage that situation. And I think that's what's important to remember. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, I, I think I may have made a face when you said, you know, it's not perfect in the eyes of the law. The reason I made the face is, well, the law's not telling, no, 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 but the law, no, it's simply, it's, it's, it's almost that you're doing yourself in because the law says you're having to think about if, if there's a decision which needs to be taken by the person at this point and you can't wait. I mean, if you can wait, and you can allow time and you can allow all of those things, that's fine. If you've actually concretely got to take a decision right here, right now, then the law is completely clear that if there's nothing practicable you can do, you just have to go ahead and do it, which I think is, I'm not just mansplaining, legally mansplaining back to you, but I think it's just really interesting that, that because I do think it's a real problem where people think, oh, I can't do something until X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, if you've got to take a decision right here, right now, you know, the law is clear, you've got to do what you can do with the information you've got at that point. And I think a lot of clinicians look at that and go, oh, well, I, I understand that to mean kind of like the emergency situation. So if somebody is in the emergency department and needs a, an urgent medical intervention, but there are then those other things like, well, where do we place an individual um, who is currently drinking while we're waiting to get them in for their medically managed alcohol withdrawal. So it's those kind of like they're not emergency emergency and they're not long term. I can wait until 
they're yeah. not drinking anymore. It's that kind of intermediate bit. And I and I think you've just got to be pragmatic. And, you know, at the end of the day, you put the person at the centre and you do what's in their best interest um, all the time. And But you've got to be pragmatic about it. And be willing to come back and reevaluate. It's that, isn't it? It's, it's not saying I've got X and then I've got to... Um, you know, make this decision once for all. Absolutely. And that, and that is one of the big things with ARBD, particularly once people have, have managed to attain abstinence, is that um, they improve. You know, more often than not, they improve. So all of your assessments have to, you know, they're dynamic. You have to keep reassessing, keep reevaluating, and particularly when it comes to risk and capacity. Yeah, yeah. Ken, I don't know whether you had any thoughts on that. On that angle, um, well, there is um, amongst some NHS trusts um, the uh, sort of mentality that basically there was um, some work done back in America back in the nineteen eighties by a guy called Oslin that said that um, that you couldn't establish whether somebody has a longer term brain damage due to alcohol and thiamine deficiency unless they had been clear of alcohol for some three months. In effect, it takes three months in a severe drinker um, to, for, the, uh, for the sort of toxic effects of alcohol to wear off. And some people in some trusts will say, well, they haven't got alcohol related brain damage until they've had till they're cognitively damaged after three months of not drinking, which actually is really quite nonsensical because if you've got somebody with reasoning and memory problems and you're sending them home without alcohol-related brain damage because they've not, uh, not been uh, free for three months, then they're just going to go back into the cycle of drinking. And we must try and uh, get away from that sort of model. And as Julie says, we have responsibility as caregivers and providers to look after people who are incapacitated, whether they have alcohol in their blood or whether they're within the two, three months or whether they're in five years. <laughs> We've still got, uh, under law, a requirement to look after, look uh, assess their capacity. Yeah. And actually, in a way, I mean, I should be very interested in what you, what you think about this, because I've become increasingly convinced it's actually an actively terrible idea to start asking does this person have capacity to make decisions about alcohol? Which is a question which people quite often ask. Because if you ask that question in the abstract, you don't really know what to do with the answer. Whereas if you say, I've got to make a decision right here, right now, or be involved in a decision right here, right now, about, for instance, should this person be discharged from hospital to go home? Or should something else happen? Then you've got something grounded. And then you can do, in the context of that, there is alcohol, there's potentially alcohol-related brain damage. And I'm trying to think through the impact of all of that on that person's actual decision, not about drinking, but it's about can they, for instance, manage their care needs? Yeah, but does that sure. make, is that something where both of you go, what is this man talking about? Or is that something where both of you go, I can see the logic in that? Definitely. I mean, I, I, I think the last couple of, of Section 49 reports that I've had to do for people who were, you know, are on a, a deprivation of liberty, um, the, the number of individual specific questions I'm being asked to assess capacity for is ever growing. And the last time I had nine individual requests for very, very specific questions. And it was like, well, I'm actually repeating the same answer each time I'm, 
I'm doing this. So you're absolutely right. The, the fundamental question is, can this individual look after their health and care needs um, and where they live? And everything else feeds into to that. So yeah, it's I think drilling it down into all these very, very specific questions often isn't very helpful. I mean, obviously, there's a yeah, we capacity is meant to be decision specific, but I think it's really interesting the extent to which the courts have kind of pulled back from or said actually there are just circumstances where if you go too far down into different silos, it just it starts being logically meaningless. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Ken, go for it. I want to pick up a couple of points there, um, and they're quite uh, one or two quite in, intriguing points, really. Um, the first, the first point is that when we are asking somebody to make decisions in a capacity assessment there are fundamentally two types of decision a person is being asked to make the first is what um, is known as a decisional decision and that's a decision which is made in the here and now like do you want to put on your shoes and then there's what we call a performative decision and that's where a person has to make has to understand and weigh up the the, the uh, variables and then has to imagine a situation in which they're going to undertake that decision so for example are you going along to the alcohol treatment services when you're discharged from hospital and the person will have to actually um, synthesize all the information and project it into an imaginary situation when he's home and then say yes or no as the case may be and that performative decision-making actually requires a whole lot of different cognitive structures than a decisional decision where you can actually help a person there and then. Yeah. Um, so, so a performative decision is a much more complicated thing. And, and, and the, other, the other important thing is um, this, um, um, this concept of the paradox where a person with frontal lobe problems, if they are actually sitting in a structured interview or sitting in a nursing home or in a hospital where they've got lots of cues around them asking them what to do and um, telling them what to do then they're going to operate in a very um, normative way they're going to it's going to appear as if nothing's wrong with them but if you put them into a social context where they have to make more complicated social decisions without the structures around them they tend to fall apart and it's really going back to what we said before is picking up that old behavior um, previous behaviours to see if it can make you help predict um, how they're going to behave in the future. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought it, I mean, for instance, you wouldn't, a, an occupational therapist would never dream of determining someone's ability to, you know, activities of daily living. They'd never dream of doing that just on the basis of, as it were, self-reporting. I mean, exactly. they'd want to see the person in action. And that's why I've always found it quite challenging in a way that you've got a capacity assessment being as you say, in relation to that kind of performative aspect, um, where people are saying, I'm just going to rely on self-reporting without actually then seeing how is this person coping? You know, right. have I got information to triangulate to go, well, you just didn't cope last time. So I then need to kind of get. Yeah. Precisely. Um, I don't know if Julie's got anything to add. You, you... I, I, I pulled the occupational therapist question, um, actually. Um, yes, an occupational therapist will assess someone um, but very often what happens in hospital is the occupational therapist takes them to the pretend kitchen, which is all lovely and sparkly clean, that has a kettle very clearly on show. 
yes. um, and a tub with coffee, and will then ask them to to make a cup of a cup of coffee. And as Ken said, the cues are there. You can see exactly what you need to do. But back in your own flat, which is untidy, and you haven't bought coffee for a couple of weeks, things are are very very different. So I think although we do get activities of daily living assessments. Um, that that frontal lobe paradox element comes back into it. You're doing it in a very structured clinical environment that gives you the answers, and it's not the same as real life. Yeah, there's another yeah. there's another interesting area that's um, worth mentioning, um, um, and uh, as, uh, as we've we've talked at quite quite at length, uh, um, looking at the concept con con the consequences of short term memory. But people with um, moderate to severe alcohol-related brain damage have long-term memory problems, and they can lose up to 25 years of their life backwards, as it were. Now, this is quite important in capacity assessment, um, and it's often an, an ignored. When um, a clinician or a capacity assessor, um, best interest, whatever, goes in to see a person, there are they may they will go in with some assumptions and one of the assumptions you go in is that that person let's say they've been in hospital for 10 times in the last year and they've been through terrible problems at home and they've had um, all sorts of blood transfusions and things like that and um, the assessor goes in with the expectation that that person has all that information in their head and that that information is going to, they've learned from that information and it's going to inform their decision-making. Yeah. But actually what you're going into is a clean slate where that person doesn't even realize they've been in hospital. So you're going in with an assumption that the person is viewing their past and consequently informing their current decisions um, the same way as you would. Oh. And it's actually a big problem sometimes and you'll get people say well they've gone in they've gone in they've been in hospital 10 times this year why can't they see the danger of it from their point of view they haven't been in hospital 10 times and that's a conceptual thing that we have to get around as well i think oh there are so many more things i'd love to ask you because it's <laughs> it's just wonderful to have the opportunity to pick the brains of two people just so deeply immersed in this but I do try and keep these to 20 minutes and we've already strayed over a little bit because I've just been so interested. Um, Julia and Ken, thank you very, very much indeed for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank Pleasure. you. <laughs>